The American people are going to have to work a lot harder to be informed citizens and read and watch as many sources that they can in order to become fully informed on the issues because there are not enough of us out in the field. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And that's Andrea Mitchell, a journalistic icon who spent much of the last four decades covering politics for NBC News. She got her start in journalism while in college. I interned at an all-news radio station in Philly and thought I would get a job there. But when I graduated, they told me they didn't hire women. They never had a woman in the newsroom and we're not going to start. Since then, of course, she's covered the White House, Congress, the State Department and the campaign trail. She told us about the changes she's seen over that time, good and bad, and where we go from here. Norms are being broken. Inspectors general are being fired. Major decisions are being announced and made by executive order of the president. Agencies are being hollowed out. And there were so many abnormalities about all of this that I don't know how it can be restored in future administrations. And now, here's my conversation with Andrea Mitchell. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, before we dive into a bit more about your life and your career, which we always talk about on Women Rule, I wanted to get a bit into the news. Recently, it was announced that Joe Biden won't be accepting the Democratic nomination in Milwaukee, and it's unclear what exactly Republicans and Donald Trump are going to do moving forward with their own nomination of the president. But you've covered quite a few conventions over the years. Can you talk a little bit about how you're approaching this one and and how it might be different? This one is unprecedented. I am approaching it with great excitement, as always, anticipation. We don't know what will happen. How does this come off? The Biden campaign has known they were going to do a largely virtual convention. So uh, they've had actually more time to prepare for it. But now that we know that because of COVID-19, He's not even going to Milwaukee, a key battleground state for them. And Milwaukee was anticipating it. There were obviously going to be opportunities to see him, uh, even from a distance, and for Wisconsin voters to, you know, embrace this. So that is, you know, challenging. But it is reinforcing their message that, uh, you know, I'm the safe one. I'm the one thinking about your health in they believe sharp contrast to the way the White House has been handling this. But now we know that both parties are not going to have real conventions. And that is, uh, you know, a real difference. That's what makes it so exciting because we really do not know how this is going to work until we see it. And we will be reacting to it with the experience that we have. And I'm excited to be with my three fellow anchors on our team and all of our great correspondents. We'll be reacting to it just as the American people are and reflecting that against our experience uh, covering conventions. My first conventions were as a local reporter traveling for my radio network back then, back in 1972. You know, with a little less than three months, obviously the pandemic is continuing to rage across uh, the country. Few reporters are going out on the road. Those that are due are doing in a limited capacity. Will you mostly be kind of Washington-based until the election, or do you have any opportunity or ability to kind of to get out and see things for yourself, which is obviously kind of a hallmark of what you do? You go and you tell the story and you're on the ground sometimes. 
Well, I have been on the ground for every campaign, and I am missing it more than I can tell you, not just for the excitement, but more importantly, for the contact with candidates and voters. I believe there is no way to replace one-on-one contact with voters. And one of the great virtues of being a campaign reporter, as they always have been, is you talk to people. In the primaries, you're in a state, you know, for weeks over the course of a year or months over the course of a year. In the 1992 campaign, which is still my favorite, only because we were on the bus tour and I traveled across America uh, covering Bill Clinton and Al Gore and Hillary Clinton and Tipper Gore. And what happened was the bus would stop and at every stop, many, many stops along the way, we would talk to voters along, along the train tracks and in towns and small groups. And it was unlike any campaign that I'd ever covered because the other campaigns have all been airport to airport, tarmac to tarmac and getting out, but in a much more confined way. So I miss that terribly. I think that the American people are going to have to work a lot harder to be informed citizens and read and watch as many sources that they can in order to become fully informed on the issues because there are not enough of us out in the field. And there is no replacement for doing interviews with the candidates themselves, going on the rope lines, grabbing whatever information we can get, talking to sources face-to-face, and watching a crowd react to the candidate's speech and seeing how it's going over. Um, That we're not going to be experiencing this year. It's definitely different. I mean, I think four years ago, reporters were on the ground. I I was in in Iowa. I was in New Hampshire, kind of covering it on the Republican side of of the beat. Um, But a lot of reporters famously got it wrong, predicted, you know, Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. How have you adapted your approach to coverage or have you adapted your approach to coverage kind of post-2016? Absolutely. First of all, the mathematical process by which we create our polling has been adjusted. And the polling wasn't that far off in terms of the popular vote, but obviously did not reflect the outcome. We are being much more cautious and less predictive. I think part of the problem is we didn't properly assess the draw of the third party candidate. And there was almost no way to use polling to analyze the effect of Comey's last minute reopening of the email issue on particular suburban voters and the lack of enthusiasm that black voters had for Hillary Clinton in terms of turnout, as well as the effect of the Sunday night letter from Comey. I was in New Hampshire with Clinton absolving her of this late laptop issue. So we were on the way to Des Moines when it first arose and then we were in New Hampshire on Um, that last Sunday, and some of the Clinton people felt at the time that by reopening it and saying, oh, never mind, (laughs) you know, that it made it worse because it was a last-minute reminder in the last, you know, 48 hours, you know, among some of these suburban women voters, perhaps in in Pennsylvania, that, you know, we never really trusted her. Maybe there's a reason not to vote for her. Also, we kept asking on the plane, why aren't you going to Michigan? So she goes to Michigan on that last Friday and then adds a stop on the Monday before election day. 
uh, never gets to Wisconsin. You know, all of that were questions we were raising that were inadequately answered. So we have to take all of that into into consideration. It's pretty wild looking back at kind of all of those different pieces that when put together in the puzzle, you can kind of see how it it all fit together. All right, I want to take a step back um, as we as we do for the, this podcast. Tell us where you grew up, uh, kind of the beginnings of Andrea Mitchell, if you will. I grew up first in New York City in the Bronx, and in fact in AOC's district. And then as a you know first grader, we moved to the northern suburbs in Westchester County, New York. And I was looking back, almost immediately interested in writing stories, which my parents saved on lined paper and pencil. And when I was 12, I was chosen by my elementary school to be the school reporter that wrote a weekly column for our hometown newspaper. And so I would write it and I was always on deadline writing and finishing it in the car in the front seat with my mom. And she would be driving me to Main Street where the newspaper office was. And I so vividly remember bringing my story in and handing it in to the only woman in the newsroom. She wore a hat. Her name was Miss Virginia Clare. And she was the school editor, the education editor for then the uh, New Rochelle, New York Standard Star, a Gannett paper. And it was such a great experience to see my byline. My sister and I always grabbed the evening newspapers the minute they arrived after school and spread them out on the, the living room floor on the carpet and read everything that we could get our hands on. So there was there were signs that I was not going to be the violinist my parents had raised me to be as much as I practiced my violin every day. And then um, I guess when I got to college, I became entranced with, um, at, I was in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania and fell in love with radio. We had a non-commercial 50,000 watt FM station, and I ended up becoming the program manager and doing newscasts and having a classical music program. And, I feel like um, you were destined, even from an early age, to be <laughs> to be in this business. That's pretty so crazy. I interned at an all news radio station in Philly and thought I would get a job there. But when I graduated, they told me they didn't hire women for the newsroom. They never had a woman in the newsroom, and we're not going to start. So it was a management training program. So. Um, I dropped out of that and asked if I could get an entry-level job. And so they hired me as what they called a copy boy. And that was my first job. Well, yeah, talk about that. So, I mean, when you came into this business, obviously, you couldn't get a job because you were a woman or they didn't have a position for that. There weren't a lot of women role models. You have now covered Congress. You've covered the White House, presidential campaigns, the State Department. You've traveled and interviewed world leaders across the world you were really a trailblazer for women journalists. Did you kind of know that at the time or kind of paint us the picture of what it was like as a young woman when you started in 1967 uh, in a Philadelphia radio station? It was incredibly misogynistic. Uh, there were some wonderful mentors, male mentors, and one you know, incredible news director who protected me from um, a lot of problems when the very tough police commissioner and then the mayor, Frank Rizzo, would complain about me. This wonderful man, Fred Walters, would not tell me. And decades later, he told me about how it had gone all the way to the chairman of the board of the broadcast company, 
the mayor calling the chairman of the board of Westinghouse Broadcasting and saying, you've got to fire this, this girl in Philadelphia. And that came back down the chain of command. And the news director said, you know, I'll do something if she does something wrong. And that was it. And they never told me. And I asked why not. And the news director said, because it would chill your reporting and I didn't want you to back off. Um, they gave me great opportunities. Some I grabbed myself, you know, volunteering for anything that came up when, you know, people writing after Martin Luther King Jr. died. I was the one who said, I'll go up to North Philly and cover anything that's to cover because a lot of other people didn't want to go. You, t- you grab opportunities, but there was, there was no anticipation that there were going to be opportunities. That is one thing that was very, very hard to accept. But I think it toughened me because the mayor was so difficult and so misogynistic <laughs> and so threatening and rude that um, it made me, I hope, a better reporter. And they did give me the chance to go in 1972 to the Republican and Democratic conventions in Miami. First time I was ever pepper sprayed was in Miami covering the uh, protests outside Richard Nixon's renomination. First time I met Jimmy Carter uh, was on the floor of that convention when the governor of Pennsylvania called me over and said, I want you to meet the governor of Georgia, my friend. I'm telling you now, Andrea, he's going to be our next nominee four years from now. And no one had ever heard in Pennsylvania of Jimmy Carter. Um, but the experiences I've had at conventions, that, that was a moment. You had a lot of moments, that's for sure. I, I was reading uh, earlier today about kind of your career and, and all, of the, I mean, the amazing kind of parts of history that you've been a part of, but you kind of talked about the your kind of diminutive stature. You're not a super big, physic, you know, in terms of physicality. Can you talk about kind of that, I think you've talked a little bit about before the conflict of like wanting to be liked, but also wanting to ask tough questions, how you've balanced that. I think that that's something that whether you're a woman journalist or just a woman in their, in, in most careers, something that we all struggle with. It really is a strange balance because you've got to be uh, polite, but aggressive. But, you know, I recall early in my career shouting questions at President Reagan partly because he was hard of hearing, partly because of the helicopter noise, because the only time we saw him was, you know, twice a week going to and from Camp David when he would walk across the South Lawn, you know, unless at a photo opportunity. And there were months without a news conference at times during his reelect. We didn't have a news conference from the day he announced to the day he was elected. And um, my mother chided me that I didn't raise you to be that impolite. Because <laughs> we... You know, I'm of a generation that wasn't raised to shout and be rude, but you have to be firm and you have to fight the impulse to um, always want to be liked. I think that there is a, among some of us, we want to be liked, we don't want to be rude, we want to be friendly. I love people, I love to connect with people, and I also always try to think of the human side, even of people that I might disagree with on some level, try to think they have wives, husbands, children, problems. So you try to empathize, but I think you have to remember what your mission is, which is to find the facts. And you have to arm yourself with reporting and facts. And I really admired 
my colleagues at the White House and many of the newspapers and networks that you, whom you see following up after each other and pushing back and trying to persist, especially the women and especially the Black women who I think have been singularly targeted by the president. Kind of leads into my next question. I mean, this Trump, the Trump presidency has changed so many norms in Washington. What do you think is the biggest challenge from your perspective on covering this White House? You talked about one, obviously, which is this uh, kind of press conference mentality and how they treat women reporters and, and, and women of color. But are, are there other things that you've also noticed in, in kind of looking back about how this is just so different? Yes, indeed. You know, so many norms have been broken. Now, on the plus side, I will say the White House has preserved the pool arrangements by which people can travel with the president, which is not the case at the Pentagon or the State Department. That has been completely blown up. But they have observed that the president makes himself available. The downside of that is that the president is his own president, press secretary, communications director, chief of staff. So that whereas normally in a White House, you would accumulate sources. And when you get you know, information from a national security advisor or a chief of staff and you, you know, get a seconding source and talk to other people, you can pretty much sure that that's what's going to roll out. You cannot be certain until the president says it. And even then, you don't know whether he's trying to divert attention, whether it's a new shiny object and how serious it is. So you are constantly updating and social media makes everything different. His use of social media for major announcements, you can't ignore. You know, he fired his secretary of state and his national security advisor on Twitter. So you can't ignore his pronouncements. Sometimes they really are true. The other norm is that the podium is no longer a place where press secretaries in Republican and Democratic administrations, with a few exceptions, during the Nixon years and briefly during the Reagan years, try to tell the truth or avoid lying or spin it, but not sell bald-faced lies. Now, the press secretary has an audience of one, is trying to satisfy an, an audience of one, whether or not it all comports with reality. So that changes the whole nature of the briefing. In this administration, the Secretary of State does not make himself available other than to very selected news organizations, does not hold regular news conferences, and does not let us travel with him. And that is blowing up a tradition that goes all the way back to Henry Kissinger. So there's no traveling press corps. We don't know what he is doing or where he is, um, except for very few people at times none with Tillerson, then maybe two or three. Not all the media are represented. The voice of America is being decimated. Diplomats are being silenced. Norms are being broken. Inspectors general are being fired. Major decisions are being announced and made by executive order of the president. Agencies are being hollowed out. Environmental rules are being changed with no consultation. And there were so many abnormalities about all of this that I don't know how it can be restored in future administrations. Yeah, it's when you bring when you when you break it down like that. Sometimes I think when we're in the daily influx of news and there's so much kind of happening, it's uh, you don't kind of take that step back. But it certainly uh, is kind of just uh, 
mind-numbing to think about how things have changed so much. We are, unfortunately, I could talk to you all afternoon um, and pick your brain about all kinds of um, crazy stories and interesting tales, but we are quickly running out of time. But but I do want to talk about something we, we talk a lot about on this podcast. You've been at NBC, I believe, since 1978. You've received a Lifetime Achievement Emmy at the News and Documentary Emmy Awards. Kind of have a two-part question. Um, one being, how do you manage to still be interested and, and, and still wanting to get up and kind of driving the news before we got on this? You were you were doing a rundown call for for you know your your job and kind of different segments, and also how you've handled kind of the ageism that so often happens in TV, in particular, where networks are looking for the new thing. Especially, there's a lot of pressures on women and how they look. Can you talk and reflect a little bit about that? Well, that is actually one of the things that has changed for the good, I think. Because I've been at NBC, as you point out, a long time. But here I am about to be one of the four anchors of our election coverage. And it's an incredible privilege to be with Lester Holt and Savannah Guthrie and Chuck Todd. And the fact that they're, including me, conveys, I hope, you know, respect for my knowledge and my veteran status, but it's certainly not, you know, not seeing my age as a drawback. It's a plus, which is so great. NBC has given me opportunities, you know, for the last dozen years to anchor a daily show on MSNBC, having that great platform and opportunities on the Today Show and Nightly News. And also in a wonderful way now, I mean, I've been mentoring people on my team, and now watching women advancing. And uh, my former State Department producer is now the executive producer of the Today Show. And you know, my former uh, producer, executive producer of my MSNBC show is the executive producer of Nightly News. I now work for a woman, Rashida Jones, who's the executive producer of our conventions and election coverage, and also Dayside on MSNBC. So seeing women now, in these roles, behind the camera and on camera, Kristen Welker and Hallie Jackson at the White House, you know, is so exciting. And I'm seeing change before my eyes. And now we have new leadership at NBC who are encouraging and requiring, demanding us to face the reality of the new America. You know, we are going to reach our goal. That is our um, mission of having a 50-50 racially diverse workplace. And that was never possible. I saw so much discrimination coming up through the ranks against women and against African-Americans and other minorities and LGBTQ people. And that is becoming unacceptable. And in fact, diversity is being celebrated. And so that's the greatest victory that I see now and in going into the future. I don't think that age is going to be a drawback for me, except if I don't have the excitement. And just one last thing, I wake up every morning filled with excitement and curiosity, and you could not want a more breaking, a more turbulent breaking news environment too much so given the pandemic. So we are in unprecedented times and it's very hard to work at home. I hate being kept back from running and gunning, but that's our reality in this COVID-19 quarantine. I just am always curious about how we can dig deeper and get more context to people. And actually, I think the challenge is more important because people are suffering so greatly, dying in vast numbers, and they need to know what our government is doing. And we need to hold them to account. I just feel that we are needed more urgently than ever. 
Well, Andrea, I think that's a nice note to end on. Thank you so much this afternoon for taking the time. Well, thank you, Anna. Thanks so much. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 